You, uh, you may be familiar with the story of uh, one psychiatrist who walks past another colleague and says, uh, good morning. The second therapist thinks to himself, hmm, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> now, uh, we may laugh at this joke, but there have actually been studies about what therapists really think about their patients and their colleagues. I don't think they've ever done that for rabbis and cantors. Uh, and... Um, I would draw your attention to a, you know, a very important uh, psychological work by Theodore Reich, uh, who wrote uh, in 1948, Listening with the Third Ear. And he describes how analysts intuitively use their own unconscious minds to detect and to decipher and to understand their patients. And I always think it's important, uh, particularly for we clergy, to be listening with the third ear, to be looking with the third eye, uh, to, uh, to hear uh, beyond uh, what uh, therapists call the presenting problem, that people often uh, discuss one thing with us, but we, we recognize that th there's more than just that. The third ear provides unconscious intuitions about people and their lives and their formative events. Now, um, I, I do mention this because uh, people often wonder what we clergy think about. And uh, because I'm a very private person and I don't really feel the need to parade my thoughts and accomplishments, however wonderful they may be, uh, before the, uh, the congregation, uh, I, I do uh, shun uh, speaking about myself. However, events of, and news stories of the last week seem so Fellini-esque to me, kind of bizarre and mystifying, uh, and uh, in some ways entertaining that I wanted to let you into my world uh, and welcome to it. Uh, people, uh, someone once said to me, uh, uh, what do you read for pleasure? And I said, I never read for pleasure because everything that I read has to be with an eye toward how can I use that as a sermon or whatever. But there was so much that was happening this week that I probably could get ten sermons out of it. So I'm just going to share some of these random thoughts uh, of, uh, of a rabbi on the loose. I was in uh, Washington, uh, D.C. on uh, Monday and Tuesday at the APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs uh, Committee, uh, to lobby public officials. It was my first opportunity in many years to do that. And um, the first uh, public official that uh, we lobbied was Congresswoman Jackie Spire, uh, who is on the peninsula. Uh, she fills uh, Tom Lantos' seat of blessed memory. He was a Holocaust survivor. And uh, she uh, is reported to be guarded about her thoughts on Israel and Iran. But I found her to be very welcoming, and she spoke frankly about her recent trip to Israel and uh, the beginning, as she put it, of the exploration of her Frankfurt German Jewish roots. She hadn't gotten all that far to when she was in Israel, but uh, seemed interested. I don't know that, if that was for the benefit of uh, Jewish lobbyists who were there, but um, she then made a comment uh, that... She felt very hopeless about the Middle East situation. She, she thought that after 2,000 years of Jews and Arabs being at each other's throats, that she didn't see a solution for that. And I, I, I was very taken aback by um, her um, not being well informed about history. So I, I interrupted her. I said, uh, you know, Congresswoman, I don't know if you're aware of this, but until the 20th century, uh, Jews and Arabs uh, got along very well. Uh, sometimes they just coexisted, but... Uh, Jews lived in Arab lands, uh, Jews and Arabs lived in uh, Palestine together, uh, and it was actually only with the uh, infusion of uh, Western European values on the Middle East uh, 
uh, with the likes of Lawrence of Arabia and others, uh, who uh, uh, the, uh, the situation uh, in the Middle East began to deteriorate. And uh, Jews and Arabs who, who actually were part of the golden age of Spain and uh, southern Europe uh, all of a sudden uh, became uh, enemies. Uh, so she, she actually listened very carefully, and um, I think it provided an opportunity to correct the record. And we spoke with her about Iran's nuclear weapon capability and the proliferation and the destabilization risks to both Israel, the United States, and the nations of the Middle East. Uh, and our concern about the defense budget of the $3.1 billion that the federal government gives to Israel year in and year out, and this whole issue of whether the, the budget's going to get passed again, and she assured us that it would not get passed. And there was a provision in that, uh, the, the budget, that if it does not get passed, uh, everything gets cut back by 9%. And we had a concern that 9% of uh, $3 billion is somewhere around $300 million. And that means a great deal to Israel. But she assured us that they would have a way to outmaneuver that 9% cut uh, after all. Uh, and I can understand that before the election, nobody wants to... You know, pass a budget in which they have to make some really hard uh, decisions. Uh, and then we spoke to specifically about House of Representative Bill 4133, called the U.S.-Israel Enhanced Security Cooperation Act, affirming the enduring commitment of the United States to the security of the State of Israel by providing Israel with military capabilities to, defer, uh, to deter and defend itself against any threats. Uh, interestingly enough, and I was really quite pleased, and I will send her a thank you note, by the time I left Washington, uh, a representative, uh, the congresswoman, agreed to co-sponsor this bill. So that was a, a nice unintended consequence. Then uh, we had a meeting with uh, Senator Boxer, uh, which uh, did feel something out of a surrealistic uh, Fellini movie, not because of anything the senator did, but because of the setting. Uh, we did not meet in the, uh, the House office building. We met in not quite a corridor of Congress, but uh, it was kind of set up like a table here. Senator Boxer sat here, three or four other people, including Howard Corr, the, the president of uh, APAC, was there, and then a few of us, and then I sat here, and there's one other person here. And then over here was a, um, a reception desk where people would come in and then go down a hallway that way. So we're busy chatting with the senator, and she was, she was wonderful. And, um, you know, my eye starts catching some of the activity. And uh, within a few minutes, and, and they're focused on this, and within a few minutes, in walks Miss Alabama <laughs> with her uh, Alabama <laughs> and her entourage, and they check in at the, and then they, they go off into the, uh, in through the swinging doors into wherever it is Miss Alabama goes and when you're in Congress. A few minutes later, Miss Mississippi. A few minutes later, Miss Florida. So uh, Senator Boxer was really wonderful, and um, uh, she, she's very supportive and, and a lovely, lovely woman, and she spoke about her connection to Israel and her many trips and, uh, and how supportive she intends to continue being her trip to Argentina, where she was very disturbed 
by what is uh, going on in Argentina. So that was uh, uh, quite something. So I, I exited the, um, uh, the, the, the Congress to go outside to see thousands of people standing there like this. I thought, what, what is going on? You know, it's like, is it a bird? Is it a plane? It, no, it's... But what they were looking for was not Superman, but the space shuttle, which was now going to make three passes over Washington perched on top of the 747. So I stood there also like this, watching, and sure enough, and it made a pass over the Washington Monument and whatever, and everybody's going, ooh, with their cameras, and, and ooing and eyeing, and I was standing next to an APAC uh, um, uh, member of the staff, and she said, oh, I'm trying to channel my five-year-old for this. And so, so I saw all three passes over uh, Washington, and uh, then I made my way to the airport to return to San Francisco, uh, only to discover that there it was at the airport, you know. So everyone was busy pointing out. The pilot would say, oh, look over on your left, there's mm, and, the, and the little transportation uh, bus. So um, I got to see more of the uh, space shuttle than I probably ever will. It's going to fly up to New York and make a U-turn and go back to the, uh, the Space Museum in, uh, at uh, Dulles Airport. So earlier this month, uh, the controversy of 84-year-old Nobel laureate Gunter Grass's bombshell 69-line poem entitled What Must Be Said was one in which he said that for too long he had been cowed into silence by a verdict of anti-Semitism. He portrayed President uh, Mohammed uh, Ahmedinejad as a loudmouth and a lamb in wolf's clothing. And in the poem, he casts Israel as an uber power. He claims that Israel enslaves 80 million Germans by, weighing, uh, by wielding the Shoah to gouge U-boats out of Berlin and to suppress what must be said. A Hoover Institution fellow, uh, Yosef Jaffe, summarizes Grass's vitriol by quoting the, crip, the quip attributed to Israeli psychiatrist Zev Rex. The Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. All this is made even more bizarre by the fact that Grass, long considered to be a self-proclaimed conscience of Germany, who urged Germans to confront their Nazi past, confessed himself in 2006 to having been drafted into the Nazi Waffen-SS at age 17. Anshul Pfeiffer, Israeli Haaretz columnist, summed up the situation. How could he have imagined that there would not be a price to pay unless his bloated self-importance hid the reality from him? Having served in the organization that tried with a fair amount of success to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth, he should keep his views to himself when it comes to the Jews' doomsday weapon. And if the 84-year-old writer has become so lost in self-adulation that he can't realize something that simple, the editors of the respectable newspaper should have found a way to gently point it out to him. He is not just another boy born on the Baltic coast in the 1920s. He did something along the way that tainted him forever. 
Logic, he concludes, and reason are useless when a highly intelligent man, a Nobel laureate, no less, does not understand that his membership in an organization that planned and carried out the wholesale genocide of millions of Jews disqualifies him from criticizing the descendants of those Jews for developing a weapon of last resort, that is the insurance policy against someone finishing the job his organization began. What could be more self-evident? On Wednesday night, I had the great privilege of hearing New York Times columnist Edward Rothstein, who delivered the Charles Michael lecture. Charles Michael is here tonight. Uh, and he set up this lecture at the Jewish Center on the subject of the problem of devaluing the Holocaust by the action of most of the Holocaust museums enlarging the Holocaust message under the umbrella of centers of tolerance in which elaborate organizations justify the inclusion of the Holocaust in high school curricula and public financing of museums by broadening the subject to include things like bullying uh, and what have you. He calls it history stripped of distinctions. Indeed, there is a difference between mass genocide and schoolyard bullying. Uh, and I sat next to a woman who is a designer of Holocaust museums who took great umbrage at the message I guess because she designs these museums that broaden the subject. But she chose not to keep her comments to herself, and she kept poking me and making these under-her-breath comments while I'm trying to listen to uh, Mr. Rothstein, who's positively uh, brilliant. And, and I, I, you know, I, I wanted to say, would you stop that already? I, I, I get the point. But um, it was just one more of these sort of Fellini-esque films that I found myself in the, in the middle of. Well, just a few other things that come to mind since I'm giving you the broad pastiche of the nuttiness of the world out there. The New York Times reported this week on the death of Lou Goldstein at age 90. His fame? Lou Goldstein was a tumbler. The Yiddish word for, how would you translate that? Um, well, an entertainer, but someone who keeps the... The, the ball rolling. rolling. Yeah, yeah, an entertainer. Uh, who, with the Yiddish inflection from 1948 to 1986 kept the Borscht Belt Hotel patrons at Grossinger's laughing with, uh, with jokes and songs and shtick. And uh, the, uh, the non-Jewish equivalent was uh, somebody named Charlie Noonan, who, when I was a kid, I used to go to TV shows, and he would come out first to, to warm up the audience and tell a few jokes, and, and he would show you how to respond to the applause sign and whatever. But um, Noonan was this, um, uh, this, this uh, 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 Excuse me, Lou Goldstein was, was this character at um, uh, Grossinger's, which was a, um, uh, it was an iconic uh, hotel, uh, unlike any other, and, and that, that entire world is gone. But I can remember as a young rabbi being at a rabbinic convention there. And when you ate at the, in the dining room in Grossinger's, the waiters were primed to throw as much food as you, you don't like this? Here, try this. You, don't want, you, want, you want two entrees? Try this. And I can remember once ordering a piece of pie. The waiter came to the table. He threw it up in the air, flipped around. He caught it, and he put it down in front of me. I mean, that's sort of like the, the era that is now uh, long gone. 
And uh, finally, the Wall Street Journal reported this week on the bar mitzvah of the son of Bay Area Rabbi Matt Beers Ariel. Am I pronouncing it right? I don't know. I don't know him. Whose son Yonah did not want to have a bar mitzvah. So his rite of passage instead of a bar mitzvah? How many of you saw the article? Okay, just a couple. Uh, Making a bike trip from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. and collecting petition signatures for Congress to curtail global warming. Uh, Okay, so this made the Wall Street Journal, uh, and I assume that will inspire other people instead of this sacred religious rite coming of age when a child demonstrates religious competency by reading from the Torah, by addressing the congregation uh, uh, and dumbing it down to a bicycle trip uh, is, uh, to me, extraordinarily offensive. I thought if I'd had the time, I would write uh, uh, a a response to the Wall Street Journal, but I'm not able to do that now. To substitute a tzedakah and survival project for a sacred uh, rite uh, of passage is banal to me. Uh, It uh, is what this child is aligning his name with, um, something uh, that will have meaning in his life, uh, that he took a bicycle trip across the country. Uh, Is it a sacred responsibility that he will pass on uh, to his uh, children, uh, rabbi-less, cantor-less, synagogue-less, outdoors? Uh, I can't imagine that we as Jews will survive very long with the erzatz, Bar Mitzvah in the Wilderness. Uh, Is this holy moment in life, uh, in the life of a Jewish family, uh, the child of a rabbi, no less, is what a Jewish ritual has become dumbed down to? So I think you can see, uh, even though these may not be uh, directly related to one another, the the bizarre nature of them and the the fantastic uh, that... I was an observer to uh, during this past week, you know, made me think that uh, there are always strange possibilities in the world for adventure of all kinds, uh, but uh, it does help me be grounded and focused on uh, what's important. You're all here tonight. We have wonderful guests from Oregon uh, who are here to study religion. Uh, They didn't come here to go to arcades uh, in San Francisco. They're here to be in synagogues and in churches. Uh, you're here to worship and to pray. We have uh, the, the great pleasure of having uh, two uh, B'nai Mitzvah, Benot Mitzvah ceremonies uh, tomorrow uh, where uh, these moments uh, are lasting moments uh, that you will uh, remember for the rest of your lives. Uh, and uh, when the rabbi stands up there with you and blesses you, uh, that is a, a moment uh, when God will be present uh, in your lives at that moment. And we... Uh, pray uh, that that sense of purpose and sacredness motivate you uh, and take you uh, through life as a daughter of mitzvah, of divinely commanded uh, acts. Uh, And if uh, you and we are all able to live our lives, uh, not on bicycles and not by necessarily signing petitions, but by doing divinely commanded mitzvot, uh, then I think the world will be a little bit of a better place and maybe we'll see a recession of some of the bizarre stuff that's going on out there. Uh, it, would, it would kind of be nice. Shabbat shalom.